Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast, and I'm glad to visit with my friend Rabbi Lipman. How are you, sir? How's the land of Israel right now? Thank God we're doing well. Uh, for those who don't know, not a simple week, but not a week that we're not familiar with. But we had a night this week where 45 rockets and mortars were fired at our cities and towns uh, near the Gaza border. It's always difficult to have a night where people have sirens and running to uh, shelters. But uh, we won't uh, lose to this enemy, and we'll do whatever we have to to get things back to normal. But right now, it's definitely a little bit of a tense time uh, because of that situation. So we have the terrorist organization known as Hamas, and there's another one called Islamic Jihad, and they control the Gaza Strip. Hamas was elected by the people of Gaza to control that, and what is happening is rockets, mortars, burning kites, all kinds of different ways to attack the people of Israel in the southern portion, the southwest portion of Israel proper right next to Gaza. These people are suffering, and they have to have a bomb shelter, and they have to have a siren that goes off, a real live siren, plus there are all kinds of cell phone apps that have sirens that go off and indicate that you need to move to shelter. And so life has to continue, and of course the Israeli military has to react and strike back to stop the terrorists who are sending in rockets. And so Israel is condemned for counterattack or defensive attacks, But Gaza doesn't seem in places like the U.N. and in many media to be attacked for the initial assault. And they're not seeking to gain anything. They're not going to conquer Israel proper. They're not going to gain territory. They're not going to win militarily. So their only aim is to cause havoc or terror for innocent victims. How can we expect the people of Israel to live this way? And how could you Israelis negotiate with this group of people? This is uh, one of the situations which is very difficult for Israelis as we see the world's reaction. Uh, we have a, a, an enemy on our border determined to destroy us. Uh, that's all they're seeking to do. We're no longer in Gaza. For those who don't know, we've, we've pulled out of Gaza. Uh, we're not there. There's no soldiers there. There's no Jews living there. They could build up a beautiful town there. Instead, they're firing rockets into our cities. And somehow the world seems totally quiet about that. There's actually a time right now where there are rockets flying into cities and the world, as you said, Pastor, just focuses on the, the response of Israel. And Israel just has to really put that out of our minds. We just have to keep doing uh, what we need to do to protect our people. But one thing is for sure, uh, we can't be expected to have the people who live on this border uh, literally live this way forever. It's just not, it's just not possible. And I hope uh, that the Israeli leadership, and now I'll be a little bit critical, which I'm not usually on, the, on our program, I hope they take action to bring this to an end um, in whatever means possible. 
if that means military, it's a little bit difficult and, 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 and hard to know that we might have to have another operation. Uh, but let's do it and let's do it and, and end this situation. So as everyone goes on with the regular week, just remember that there are people in southern Israel who go to sleep at night with the fear of the sirens and going to the shelters. And people shouldn't have to live that way in today's day and age. But that's the situation. And with God's help, we will uh, defeat it and we will emerge victorious as, as usual. We do pray for the people near Gaza. I have friends who live in that area, and their life is disrupted right now. So we pray for their protection. We will get into the Torah portion of the week in just a moment. But, Rabbi, there's one more big news story that I'd like us to comment on. Just a couple of days ago, the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, we've talked about her before on the program. She's a committed Christian, a committed defender of Israel because of biblical reasons. The United States announced that the U.S. is withdrawing from the UNHRC, the United Nations Human Rights Council, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons mentioned by Ambassador Haley is because of a constant anti-Israel bias within the Human Rights Council. And in fact, the quote is, the UNHRC is a cesspool of political bias. So Mrs. Haley is not trying to make any friends over there, but she is doing a good job trying to stand up for good and against evil at the UN. For joy than seeing truth, and uh, this Human Rights Council is a farce. Uh, they don't care about human rights. Uh, they have a meeting regularly where item number seven is about Israel. We live in a world where people are being gassed in Syria, Christians are being persecuted in Egypt, not to mention all the other uh, human rights violations all around the world. Israel is a place where people live freely, freedom of religion, freedom for women, and freedom for all. And it's just an anti-Israel uh, organization. We applaud the United States for the bold move, the brave move, just continuing the trend of, of being truthful and also being a true friend of Israel. And we're, we're grateful for it, and we pray to God that, that, that it continues. And just for a little bit of education for our listeners, the UN Human Rights Council is a subset. It's a body within the United Nations. It's made up of 47 member states, and the task is to uphold human rights. It's based in Geneva, and the goal is a noble one, defend human rights and defend innocent victims. The problem is that's not what it does. As Rabbi Lippman just said, it's often specifically containing an agenda item condemning Israel, for instance, for its defense against Gaza, like we talked about a moment ago. So I say congratulations and well done to the Trump administration, specifically Ambassador Nikki Haley, for leaving the U.S. out of the Human Rights Council, which is a worthless organization, an anti-Israel organization. And as always, if it changes its policies, changes its strategy, it becomes a worthwhile organization, then I would support America getting back in it. But why should we, why should I, as an American taxpayer, pay money to a worthless anti-Israel organization? So I'm glad to report some good news on the international front here. Now let's move into our, uh, our Torah portion for the week and wrap up our news review. Let's talk about this week's portion. The Hebrew name is Chukat. It means decree. And it comes from the book of Numbers, chapters 19, 20, and 21. 
And our listeners will remember we've come all the way through the book of Numbers. Last week we had a big discussion about Korach, the cousin of Moses who rebelled against the leadership of Moses and God's plan for leadership. Well, we still have the people of Israel wandering around in the wilderness and trying to figure out how to serve God and obey God in the midst of a difficulty. They're trying to get out of Egypt into the promised land, but they're taking this long, it'll end up being a 40-year journey through the wilderness. And Rabbi, we get to Numbers chapter 19, and the whole idea is about ceremonial cleanliness versus uncleanliness. Ceremonially clean or not, the law of purification. We'll get into the specifics, but remind us again how physical cleanliness is connected to spiritual cleanliness. So it's very interesting. Uh, it's sometimes difficult for us to relate to some of these laws and, and understanding where there's spiritual contamination uh, and impurity. But uh, we have very straightforward rules. We actually, in our daily lives, uh, wake up in the morning and we believe that we have spiritual impurity and we wash our hands every morning as a mitzvah, as a commandment to rid ourselves of spiritual contamination. We've been talking, Pastor, about the priests and their role. Uh, when they bless the congregation, they go outside first and the Levites wash their hands. So we have physical acts that we do of physical cleansing that actually impact the spiritual. And that relates to this law that this portion starts with as well, which is the red calf, the red heifer, and the, the purity, which the cleansing from the red heifer brings to people who are spiritually contaminated, in this case, people who are contaminated because of contact with the dead body. The principle, I think, is that all of life is spiritual. All of life is a walk with God. And so physical life, physical dirtiness is a representation of spiritual dirtiness, if you want to use that term. And so we seek to be holy before the Lord and righteous before the Lord. And the act of washing one's hands or one's body or one's clothes is a visible symbol of being spiritually cleansed. And as you mentioned, we get into the chapter 19 of the book of Numbers and Eliezer, who's the son of Aaron, has been given the charge of taking an unblemished red heifer, verse 2, in which there is no defect and which a yoke has never been placed. Take it outside the camp and be slaughtered in the presence of this animal. And then verse 4, the priest Eliezer is to take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, seven times. Verse 5, the heifer shall be burned, its hide and its flesh and its blood will be burned. Now the priest, verse 6, is to take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. So you've got the animal carcass burning, and then the priest was to add on some ingredients, if you will, cedar wood. And one scholar says it was chosen because it was evergreen and aromatic, so it had a smell. Hyssop was chosen because hyssop was a plant. It's like a bush or a flower that was used as a sponge in the ancient days to gather something up. In this case, the gathering of blood in the first Exodus story, the way you applied the blood of the spotless lamb in the 10th and final plague of the Exodus was using hyssop to put the blood on the doors. So you had cedar wood, hyssop, and a scarlet piece of wool. And this scarlet wool is 
red like the heifer and represents the blood. So talk about this mixture of things here in the, in the ashes that will be used in the purification rites. Well, first of all, Pastor, you've done an amazing job in giving commentary and analysis about the meaning uh, of each. Lots of commentaries try to offer uh, their explanations. Certainly, uh, what's really focused on is the combination of the hyssop and the cedar. The cedar sort of represents the highest levels or, or, or grander, some would even say ego, and the hyssop represents sort of the lowly plant and how people have to make sure that they not be on this grandiose level and ego and lower yourself uh, like the hyssop. Uh, many different explanations uh, in terms of what the exact and, and why the calf in terms of the calf, people say that this is all a continuation of the purity from the golden calf, and that's why a cow is used. It's continuing to try to atone for that sin, which plunged the people of Israel to low levels. Even some commentaries going as far as saying that there wouldn't be spiritual contamination of a dead body uh, if it wasn't for the sin of the golden calf, and therefore that's why specifically a cow is used uh, in this process. So lots of symbolism, lots of discussion, and it's actually viewed by the commentaries as what we call the ultimate chok. A chok is a law which has no explanation to it. Uh, we have mishpatim, which are laws that we have explanations and they give us reasons, and then there are certain things that we do because this is what God says needs to be done. And this is a classic example uh, of that. That's why the Parsha name is chukat. Chukat is the word for chok, which is a law with no explanation. So we do try to give commentaries. We do try to explain symbolisms. When it's all said and done, it has to be put in the category of this is what God said needs to be done for spiritual cleansing, and therefore that's what we're going to do. After the priest makes this mixture of the burnt carcass of the red heifer, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet wool, he's to cast it in the midst of the burning animal. The priest is supposed to, verse 7, wash his clothes and bathe his body and then come into the camp himself. But what's interesting in verse 7, the priest shall be unclean until evening. So the person who is trying to rid the people of uncleanness in his actions of following the commands of the Lord, he becomes unclean himself. It's an interesting dichotomy that the person who is trying to make you clean becomes unclean because the uncleanness that you're dealing with and the sin here, it, it affects you. It's, it's a strange situation here. And that's the ultimate level of this chok, of this law, which we can't understand, which even the wisest of all men, King Solomon, couldn't understand. How can it be that I'm making the person pure and I walk away becoming impure? Now, there are some commentaries that don't give an explanation for it, but they do talk about the fact that sometimes to help others spiritually, we actually might hurt ourselves spiritually and then have to be cleansed for it. And that's still something that we should do, meaning sacrifice some of our spirituality uh, for the benefit of others. And that's a lesson that can be taken from here without explaining the technicality of how does this happen, but just the message that the priest knows he will become impure uh, to do this. It's a, certainly a valuable lesson that we can learn from it. Verse 10 of Numbers 19, the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. So I know that, Rabbi, you're aware, maybe our listeners are also aware, there are people 
our friends at the Temple Institute among them, who are preparing for the day of a third temple. Christians believe it. Jews believe it. There will be a third temple. And there's DNA and breeding and all kinds of things to get a red heifer ready for when a temple is built. So this is not just a story of the past. This is anticipation of the future as well. Absolutely. And and it, it, it's critical to point out that we do fully believe, like, like you pointed out, that uh, the third temple will come, uh, either be built or will come, and all these laws uh, will be relevant at that time. And therefore, it's pretty inspiring to know that there are people that are out there that are taking steps to make sure that we are prepared for it. The great rabbis throughout the generations would say, make sure to learn all the laws. I'm part of a group, uh, a worldwide group of, of hundreds of thousands that learn what we call dafyomi, which is a daily uh, page of Talmud. And we finished the Talmud in seven and a half years. And currently, right now, we're learning a tractate, which is all about things related to the temple and, and offerings. And we're supposed to study that and we're supposed to be aware of that. And certainly, preparing to be in a stage where we have a red, the red cow uh, is critical because if we are to understand that we are spiritually contaminated today, then how, when the temple comes, will we be able to serve unless we have the capacity to be decontaminated? So I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired by the people who make the effort to try to make sure that we have that spiritual preparation uh, for when the temple does come. At the latter part of chapter 19 of Numbers, it's all about the uncleanness that comes when you deal with a corpse, with you de- when you deal with a dead body. I'll remind us that there were maybe 2 million Jews wandering around the desert during these 40 years. A whole generation was said to have died off because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord back in the 12 spies story that we talked about previously when they didn't believe that God would give them the land. So thousands of bodies had to die, thousands of people. So there's all these corpses and you want to deal with them respectfully and give them a proper burial. Every family member wants to show respect and to their loved one that passes away. So everybody's going to deal with the death of a loved one at some point in time. And the uncleanness that's brought on to you because of that is... Not only if you deal with the corpse or the unclean person, it's also if you enter a tent where a dead body has been there. Why this severity of dealing with a dead body? So I think the the, the lesson is very much for us to learn why is a dead body contaminated to the point that you have all these laws. And the message really is there used to be a soul in that body and that soul has left and that leaves a void And that void is filled with spiritual contamination. And we're supposed to take a message from that to realize we have a soul inside of us. We are holy. We have capacity for the divine. And that's the message. So it shouldn't just be a technical point of get spiritually cleansed, do this, do that. But we should take a step back and ask why. And once you ask the why, your whole mode of living will be different when you realize every day when you wake up, you have a soul. You have God inside of you. You have the ability for godliness and the highest of spiritual levels, and that's what we're supposed to remember. We get now to Numbers chapter 20, and I want to remind our listeners that there's a huge time gap between Numbers chapter 19 and chapter 20. We think 38 years, and we'll show you the math on that in a moment, but a 38-year time gap between chapter 19 and chapter 20, and Rabbi, what's gone on of course it's only a guess but make an educated guess what have they been doing for 38 years 
Yeah, they've been a spiritual people in the desert. Now, we, we are going to have in a few portions a record of some of their travels, uh, 42 travels to be precise. And they've been uh, learning the Torah. They've been taken care of by God, sheltered by God, fed by God, living this very spiritual life, traveling when God tells them to travel, camping when God tells them to camp, and just growing spiritually. Um, this is, remember, they were destined to be in the desert for these 40 years as a result of the sin of the spies. And a new generation has to grow up to enter the land of Israel. So they're building themselves up spiritually to be prepared for the entering of the land of Israel when the time comes. Also making an educated guess, you know there were days when their faith was strong and days when their faith was weak. We don't have a story of these 38 years, but we have it from earlier when they would say, shouldn't we have gone back to Egypt? And boy, the good old days when we were slaves in Egypt, which is not true. So God continues to provide for them using manna as their food, the miracle provision of the Lord. They have to find water in the wilderness for this two million or so people. And so when we use that cliche, Rabbi, about my life feels like I'm in the wilderness right now, or I feel like I'm in the desert spiritually, that's exactly what they were doing, trying to learn to trust God, to teach the next generation to trust God, as you say, to learn Torah, to learn the Word of God. But yet there had to be a consequence for their sin. Forty years in the desert because they disobeyed and distrusted the Lord after the 40 days that the spies did the recon mission in the land. So you see, trying to live your daily life, trying to raise the next generation, and dealing with the consequences of your past sin. And that's the story of, of, of the entire time uh, in, in the desert. Literally, the challenges that we've seen, the consequences for them, trying to grow further. And this is a story of life, trials and tribulations, uh, moving forward, going backwards. Uh, that is the way it's supposed, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's destined to be. And we need to look at the Bible and realize that and ultimately see what prevails in the end. And what prevails in the end is listening to God's word, is staying true to God. That's what helps us prevail. That's what we see over and over again, and certainly in this book of Numbers. If you were to skip all the way to Numbers chapter 33, verse 38, it gives us a clue on this timeline. That will be in a later portion, but I'll read the verse. Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day in the fifth month. So the reason I bring that up is when we get now to chapter 20 of Numbers, you're going to talk about the death of Miriam and the death of Aaron, but it doesn't give the calendar. It doesn't give the chronology here in chapter 20. It does in chapter 33, and that's how we know we've moved from year two, approximately in the earlier chapters, now to year 40. That's how we can declare this 38-year gap. And what happens is in the first verse of Numbers chapter 20, Miriam dies, the older sister of Aaron and Moses, and she was buried there. And that's a sad story. She's at one point a hero. She saved the life of her younger brother Moses by watching him in the basket in the Nile River and then calling out to the Pharaoh's daughter and, and asking if their own mother could nurse the baby. And then she becomes his her brother's supporter, and then she also rebels and questions his authority. So Miriam is quite an interesting figure in our text, and here she passes away in chapter 20. 
Very much so. And, and just to understand how righteous uh, she was and how special she was, in our tradition, there's a connection between verse 1 and verse 2 in chapter 20, that Miriam dying and then all of a sudden they have no water. What do you mean they have no water? They had a special well uh, that God provided for them throughout for all the 40 years. They were fine and were taught that the well came in the merit of Miriam. Because of her righteousness, that's why they had the water. And that's why immediately upon her death, that's why they lost that water. So yes, they lost a person and a leader, and they also lost the benefits and the merits that came from this person. And for our Christian audience, they know that the mother of Jesus was Mary of the New Testament. Well, Mary is from the Hebrew name Miriam. So Mary of the New Testament was named after this woman, the older sister of Moses. And when the struggle comes of having no water, as you mentioned in verse 2, what is the response of the people? Verses 3, 4, 5, why did you make us come to Egypt, uh, come out of Egypt? Shouldn't we have just stayed there? So the complaining always creeps back into their hearts. This is a theme throughout the book of Numbers. We've seen it over and over again. And it's so important to point out what you've been saying about the gap in the years. This is a long time, 40 years, and here they are, and, and they're complaining again. Now, to be fair, not having water is, is scary. Even though they had the manna, they had all the miracles, you can understand why they were concerned about the water. That terminology that's used in verse 3, by Yarev Moshe, that's a strong fighting attitude. That's only used in the context of water. Uh, in the in the Torah, the people are desperate. You see the desperation. You see how how scared they are, and certainly you see that in, in in what they're saying. Moshe, Moses, and Aaron again. They also respond in desperation. Uh, in verse six, they just they come in front of God and they just fall on their faces. They don't even say anything. Uh, they just don't know what to do at this point. Partially because there is no water, and partially because they're just having to deal with the complaints of the people. So Moses and Aaron, the two brothers who've lost their sister who passed away, they do fall on their faces before the Lord in verse 6. And in verse 7, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their animals drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord. Now, Rabbi, is this the same rod of Aaron, I believe it is, that budded into the flowers and the almonds, the same rod that we believe was, in the book of Hebrews tells us, was stored in the Ark of the Covenant? Same rod? So actually the commentaries point out that that's exactly what the rod that God wanted to use because that would show that's the rod which was completely dry and and all of a sudden things started growing. That shows that from something totally dry, water can come. And that was exactly the symbolism that was supposed to be used over here. So verse 8, God says to Aaron, speak to the rock that it may yield its water. Now verse 10, Moses says to the people, listen now you rebels. Old Moses' patience is running out, it appears here. Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? So before I even get to verse 11, he calls them rebels, and he says, we're going to bring water. He doesn't call them my people, my brothers. He calls them rebels, and then he says, we, instead of God, will bring water out of this rock. 
Yeah, that's that's. There's a few things that happen over here. Uh, the rebels. That's Moses losing his temper. The commentaries talk about it. Our tradition talks about it, and and that's again. You say he lost his patience, but he's held accountable for that. And uh, the commentaries try to figure out exactly where did Moses go wrong? Where was the sin? Some actually say it was for losing his temper and losing his temper, causing him to do and say things that he normally wouldn't do. So what does he do in verse 11 of Numbers 20? He lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod. God said, speak to the rock. Moses hits it with the rod, hits the stick onto the rock. And verse 11, water came forth abundantly. The congregation and their animals drank. So even before we get to verse 12, Moses disobeys the direction of the Lord. God said, speak to the rock. He struck it instead. God could have said, too bad, no, no water for you. He doesn't say that. God's grace is abundant, and he still provides the water that the people need. And again, it's so difficult to understand how Moses, he saw God face to face. How could he make this mistake? What was he trying to do? There are 20 different commentaries trying to explain it. And, and, and again, we're left with a little bit of a question, just recognizing that all people have failures. And, uh, you know, he was pushed to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. Let's remember, earlier in the Bible, in Exodus, he was told to hit a rock. So it's not as if he hadn't been told to do so in the past. And God told him to bring the staff so he can understand why he may have thought that that's what he should do. But again, it's viewed as a sin with devastating consequences for him. And that's mentioned in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me. That's a strong indictment to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So the consequence to Moses and Aaron, they're not going to get to enter the promised land. They're going to be part of this generation that will die out before they enter the land. And it's a result of disobedience, in this case, striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Rabbi Lippman, I've never asked you this question. Have you been to Petra before? I have not. You have not. Okay. Well, Petra is a beautiful place. For our listeners, it's in the country of Jordan, just to the east, the next country over from Israel. It's a beautiful place. Sometimes I take my tour groups there. And if you haven't been there, then the big canyon that you walk down and the stone walls on either side of you are hundreds of feet tall. It's an amazing place. It's famous because it's in Indiana Jones movies, but I don't care about that. I'm talking about the the actual place, how cool it is. Now, Rabbi, I've done a little bit of research and I don't think it works because of the geography, but one of the theories of Petra and this long, miles-long tunnel that you walk through that's a canyon with walls on either side, is that that is the place where Moses struck the ground with the rod and the rock split. And we think of a rock like the size of your, you know, maybe the size of a car. No, what if it's the whole earth that splits? So there's one theory out there that this canyon that you walk through that scientists will tell us was made by flowing water. One of the theories is maybe that's made in Petra, because of this is where the rock was split and the water flowed. I don't know about the geography very well. Interesting theory, that's for sure. Certainly, we we do have commentaries that talk about the fact that, or uh, we call them midrashim, that say that the water was flowing and created rivers and that could create canyons. So it's not impossible for that to be the case. But either way, the scene of Moses hitting it and the water coming out and the people probably having joy over the water, 
followed by the punishment which comes, which is that Moses can't lead the people to the land. I mean, I, it's almost impossible to think, Pastor, that I live here, you come here and, and visit all the time, and we have the blessing to walk here, and Moses himself didn't, wasn't able to be the person to lead the people into the land. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks also when Moses prays to God to please let him experience something related to the land. But that's it's a devastating consequence for what doesn't seem to be the worst of the worst of the sins. And it leads to a lot of questions about, about this portion and this, and this story. That is pretty incredible that you and I get to do something that Moses was not allowed to do. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. keep going in Numbers chapter 20. When you get to verse 14, it begins a series of travels. And I'll say again, we think about 2 million people. And we've talked in this podcast in the past weeks about the camps where they would set up with the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the center, and the 12 tribes, four on each, or four dimensions, directions, three on each side camping so the moving of this group of people was very organized but it wasn't simple it was a lot of work and you begin to see their travels and one of the conversations that happens is in numbers 20 verse 14 moses in the place called kadesh sends a messenger to the king of edom asking can they pass through verse 17 please let us pass through your land we shall not pass through field or vineyard. We won't even drink your water. We're going to go along the king's highway until we pass through your territory. And I'll remind all of us that Edom is another name for Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. So these are relatives of the Jewish people. The family line of the Jews goes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the brother of Jacob was Esau whose other name is Edom, which means red, because in Hebrew, because we, he had red face or red hair. And so that's why in verse 14, Moses' message says, let your brother Israel go through. Our fathers went down to Egypt. So Moses is trying to make a family reunion here, and it turns out that Edom and the king will not let them pass through. And that's exactly what I wanted to point out. I'm happy that you gave the background about the family uh, connection. We're literally talking about cousins. We're not even talking about, uh, you know, we, everybody could trace back their forefathers to being brothers, and the request was denied. In verse 18, uh, Edom says, nope, we're going to come and go to war with you. And then the people of Israel sort of modify their request. And again, in verse 20, the answer is no, you can't uh, come through. And they even uh, came out and, and showed their sign of force. And that is viewed as a, as a horrific, horrific act, especially put it into the context of desert life, if you would, of, of Bedouin life, if you would, where there's a certain culture of everyone takes care of each other and we're there for each other, and the Jews are, the Israelites are rejected here. As a result of this, we have a command that people from Edom cannot enter the people of Israel. The males cannot convert forever because of their lack of simple, basic human decency to let us go through the land, to give us water, to just help people out. Uh, that's how severe this action is taken. So Moses has to find another way, another way to travel. And what he's trying to do is lead the people to the promised land. And he's got to get them to what we call the, like the front door or the entrance gate. And they're trying to decide, should they go into the land of Canaan, soon to be called the land of Israel, through the southern route, or they're going to cross over the Jordan to the east side and enter from the east. 
And so there's all these journeys that they go on. In verse 22, they set out from Kadesh. They come to Mount Hor. H-O-R is the word there. Moses and Aaron hear from the Lord at this place. Aaron and his son Eliezer are supposed to go there to the mountain. And it says in verse 26, Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did as the, site, uh, as the Lord commanded. They went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Verse 28, Aaron takes off his priestly garments and puts them on his son Eliezer. Aaron dies there. Then Moses and Eliezer come down. Verse 29, when the congregation saw that Aaron had died, the house of Israel wept for 30 days. So there's a passing of the torch, if you will, or the baton from Aaron, the first high priest, to his son Eliezer, and the people mourn over the death of one of their leaders. And the mourning is described in great detail. In verse 29, it says that all the the congregation saw that Aaron died, and they cried for him. And it says the words, Kol Beit Yisrael, which means every single Israelite, every single Jew. I mean, do, do we know of anybody who passes away without some enemies, without some people dislike him? Aaron, as the high priest, was this vehicle of peace, of, of loving one another. And we have all kinds of traditions about how he tried to make peace amongst people who were fighting. And he merited something which Moses did not merit, which is that every single person uh, mourned his death. That's how devastating it was. Like you said, Pastor, there was a continuity that was established. He took off his clothing and it was given to uh, to his son. But boy, was this devastating uh, for the people of Israel. Aaron was this symbol of peace and this person who really helped keep the people together. We have one last chapter in this week's Torah portion, and we get to chapter 21 of the book of Numbers, and it is a long list of travels. It's like a travel log. And when you get to chapter 21, you get to a place called Arad. And this person, verse 1, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord. The people said, if you will deliver this people into my hand, I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. They utterly destroyed them. And the name of the place was called Hormah, which means destruction. So the lesson here is the land of Israel has been promised to the Jewish people, but it's not going to be an easy path to get there. I'm happy you raised this because according to our tradition, and this is detailed uh, in our, in various texts that we have, every place that we went to, we offered the people peace. We said we could have peace. We're not interested in, in, in fighting. And if that was turned down, then we have no choice but to fight. And that's exactly uh, what we see starting to happen here. We're prepared to fight if we have to, and we will destroy if we have to. But ultimately, our goal would be to have it be done peacefully. And sadly, most of the uh, inhabitants of the land and in the area uh, chose uh, to fight. So the route continues, and they are moving along, and we get to chapter 21. And one of the sad stories is in verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and water. We loathe this miserable food. That miserable food, I think, being the miracle provision of manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people 
So many people of Israel died. And it's a sad story, and there's a very important New Testament story that I'll connect for us in a moment, but it's a very sad story that the people of Israel continue to rebel against God, doubt His provision, doubt His grace, and a snake. One writer calls it an adder snake, which is a very poisonous snake in the Sinai Desert. So that's the guess of this. And the people's sin was punished by the poisonous snake biting them. It's really, you know, it's so hard for us to understand how we fall and fall and fall. And one of the messages I think of it, the snake being involved, is there's one type of death from an animal, which is a lion coming and attacking someone. The snake, all it is is a little bite in the heel, uh, but it can kill a person. And I think there's a message here to the people as well in terms of sin that, you know, all these little complaints and little things, they're, they're not massive, but they're so destructive. And how careful you have to be to veer away from that. And I think that's why also, uh, specifically the symbolism for them to heal God again. The snake is the theme throughout because it's this lowly creature that has this power to kill and, and destroy. And it's such a message in terms of what sin can do, even this quote-unquote smaller sins. So the... People are punished for their disobedience, and the punishment is the snake will bite them, and the poisonous snake will cause them to die. And so what do they do in response? They run back to Moses, as they usually do, and they ask Moses to beg the Lord for forgiveness on their behalf. Uh, Verse 7, the people said to Moses, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord gives them the the remedy. Verse 8, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard or a big pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the pole or the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And again, I'm going to give you a New Testament story in a second, but Rabbi, I think it's a test of faith. Will you do this remedy? that you may think is crazy, but God says will work, will you trust God even when you can't understand? The tradition has, and the Talmud teaches, that a snake doesn't have the capacity to heal. What's going on over here? And looking up at the snake was looking up to God. Recognize that God's the only one who can heal. God's the only one who can help you spiritually and physically. And the, the snake was up on the, on the pole for them to look at, but ultimately, it wasn't some kind of magic. It was you turning and having faith in God. That is what ultimately hears you. It's a, it's, a, it's a well-known passage that as long as you turn towards God, then you can have healing and then you can have salvation. Well, that's exactly what the story is that I want to point out in the Gospel of John chapter 3. Jesus is talking about himself as the Savior. Christians believe he is the Savior and It says in verse 14 of John 3, Jesus speaking, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We believe this to be obviously a reference back to the story in Numbers 21, that you had to trust God, you had to look up to God, as Rabbi Lippman just said, and believe that He has the way to salvation and He shows you that way. And in the case in Numbers 21, look at this statue of the 
serpent in John 3, look up to Jesus, and it says, as the Son of Man must be lifted up, and we connect that with Jesus being hung on the cross several years after John chapter 3 occurs. So Jesus uses this very story as a teaching about faith and a teaching about salvation. And that's the, the key point, is that we share that value, that we share that value of God, of faith, and what that faith is able to accomplish for us. So as we continue to go through our last chapter of this week's portion, Numbers chapter 21, we mentioned it's a series of battles that they go through, and after the healing that comes from the fiery serpent and the the looking on the statue and being healed it says in verse 10 the sons of israel moved out and camped in oboth and then they journeyed from there to eabarim which is opposite moab and then they camped in wadi zared and there's a whole series of battles and journeys that they take and what they're trying to do is find a way to get into the promised land without having to defeat someone on the way And so we think geographically they have moved across the Jordan River to the east side. And this is when we're going to soon get to the place where Joshua leads them in near Jericho. But we're not there yet. So talk about these details of all these different places, all these different conflicts and people who help and people who don't help them. I think that uh, one of the things that we're supposed to see is get a sense, first of all, for their travels, recognize that they were moving uh, on their way uh, towards Israel. But exactly what you said, recognizing that there are highs and there are lows. There are moments where people are uh, enemies and we have to fight against them. And there are moments that there are people who will reach out and be helpful. And that's the way life is. Uh, There are going to be positive relationships and negative relationships, helpful relationships destructive ones and we just keep on going that's the most important message you could you some of these stops you might say well the people must have given up there uh no there's no giving up we have a goal our eye is on the promised land and we just keep moving forward regardless of what comes our way rabbi as we're closing on the end of this podcast let's reflect to where we started all the way back in the beginning a half hour ago which was people of Israel being attacked by the rockets and missiles and mortars from Gaza. And so you, as the Jewish people in the land of Israel, you seem to always be surrounded by neighbors who don't like you. So is today's story and the book of Numbers story parallel? There's no doubt that there's a parallel, and and we need to turn to the Bible on two fronts. Uh, First of all, to see how they just kept on going despite what they were experiencing and were never going to give up. And number two, recognizing again, going back to the story with the snake, that the way to survive, yes, you have to have a military and you have to have tactic tactic, and know exactly what you're doing, but ultimately it comes down to faith in God and that's what can get you through anything. And that's without a doubt what's keeping the people of Israel surviving and thriving uh, despite the challenges that we're experiencing today, just like they experienced in this story 3,000 years ago. So it's time to wrap up our conversation about this week's Torah portion. The name of this week's parasha is Chukat, the Hebrew word that means decree. We've been discussing Numbers chapters 19, 20, and 21. And Rabbi, I think you summed it up well just a moment ago that people of faith have to keep looking to God. You keep your eyes on the Lord and you walk with Him. You begin to look around at your difficult circumstances, your lack of water or 
or other struggle that you're going through and your eyes begin to focus on you and your shortcomings or you and your suffering and your faith begins to grow weak. That's not true just for the people of Israel. It's true for us even today. The challenge of keeping the faith during the good days and the bad days. And that's the ultimate message. That's why we have a weekly portion uh, to study, to get this inspiration, to feel the connection, and to make sure that we never plunge into a place of lack of faith or of pulling away from God. And if we do experience that during the week, the portion and the, and the Sabbath and the spirituality can bring us back. We do thank you for being a part of this Lone Star podcast. Share with your friends how you listen each week as the rabbi and the pastor join together to study the Word of God. My friend Dove Lipman, blessings to you and your family. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Blessings to you and all the listeners. Shabbat Shalom to all. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.